if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 9. This will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue walking through Genesis. If you were a guest with us this morning, well, let me explain to you how we got here. We began back in January walking through the book of Genesis, going through it verse by verse. And this is how we walk through the Word here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. So rather than selecting a random text this Sunday and next Sunday and, and come out with thematic sermons, uh, I just walk through the Scripture. And whatever the text is for that day uh, sets the theme of what it is we will look at. I, I say all that because today's text is about circumcision. Um, that's not exactly the topic you put on the church sign out front to draw a crowd. But, uh, but that is where we find ourselves this Lord's Day. And I think there is value in this text. There is something here that what God would have to say to us. And so uh, as we read through this and go through God's Word, uh, be mindful that, that every verse in the Scripture points towards one central theme, and that theme is the Gospel. Now, the Gospel tells us that we are all born in sin, separated from God. But God in His grace put Jesus on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that if we might repent and place our faith in Jesus, we might receive His righteousness and walk in new life with Him. That is the gospel, and that is what the Scripture speaks of. And I think it even speaks of it in texts like this one that we're going to look at today. So if you would, follow along with me as we read here in Genesis 17. We started Genesis 17 last week and looked at how God comes to Abraham with this covenant and we learned as God is the initiator of the covenant. He puts the covenant in place. And now here, as we pick up in verse 9, God is calling for a response from Abraham and from his offspring in the form of a sign of the covenant, circumcision. And so let me read this text for us and then pray for our time in God's Word this Lord's Day. Beginning in verse 9, this is what the Lord says to us. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house are bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you would, pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we ask this Lord's Day that you would do a work in our heart. That you would help us not only to understand this text, but to see what it is you would have apply to our lives today. That you would help us to understand the gospel. That you would help us to understand your covenant promises to us. And Father, I pray... Now, as I preach, as I proclaim your word, that, that you would continue in a work that I trust you have already been doing in the lives of people today. 
That those who are lost in their sin, you would call them to repentance and faith. To those who have already repented, yet perhaps are struggling this Lord's Day to walk in faith. Lord, that you would help them to repent and have faith. To repent and have faith. To repent and have faith. This is our prayer today. In Christ's name, amen. As I have uh, shared with you, I am... Very excited about the Poland team returning because my wife Sandy and our son Parker are with that team. And uh, Sandy and I tend to joke with one another that when one of us is out of town on a mission trip or an extended time, some type of chaos seems to come. And we've had uh, several chaotic things this week. Uh, I got a call early in the week that my dogs had gotten out and they were in someone's fish pond in town. Uh, that was exciting, trying to get them out of that. Uh, but then later in the week, uh, one of our children, Anna Claire, got sick and took her to the doctor and found out she has walking pneumonia. And so uh, Sandy may never leave again. Uh, seems that these things always happen when she's away. But, but with Anna Claire sick, our Saturday looked a little different yesterday. We just kind of stayed close to home and watched some TV. And uh, I came across a show that there are a number of shows like this you've probably seen where uh, individuals will go out in search of kind of hidden treasures. They'll, they'll go look through antiques, through old items, through rusted, discarded goods laying out by someone's barn, and, and they try to find items of, of hidden value there among those old, rusty goods. As I watched this show, it, it made me think about a story I'd read a number of years ago about a man in Philadelphia back in 1989. He was uh, going through uh, some shops and he went to a flea market in search of just some old things and, and he came across a painting that caught his eye. It wasn't so much the painting, it was just kind of a countryside uh, scene. It, it was the frame, he really liked the frame and so he negotiated the price of $4 and he bought this painting and took it home and as he got home he began to take the painting out of the frame when the, the whole thing just kind of fell apart. But as it fell apart, he found a, a folded document that was kind of hidden there behind the canvas. And as he unfolded that document, he found that he had one of the original 500 printings of the Declaration of Independence. He sold it at an auction a couple years later for over $2.5 million. That same copy went up for auction 10 years after that and sold for $8 million. When we come to God's Word, especially to the Old Testament, for a lot of us it's kind of like walking in an antique store or sometimes a flea market. We, we see a bunch of old things that we assume had some value in their day, but we're really not sure what they're worth to us right now. And sometimes we look at things as if it's just a, a $4 frame and we fail to see that there is something of great value there. That's what we find when we really dig in and study books like Genesis. We find something of phenomenal value. We find the gospel. And we see it even in passages like this one today. And so as we walk through this and we, we look at this covenant sign of circumcision, I want to I see through that and point towards where that points us today under a new covenant and the covenant signs God has brought to us. And ultimately, what this text teaches us about the gospel as we continue to look at what it means to walk by faith. So as we do that, we'll start with the first point that I've put in your notes there about God's covenant, and that's this. God's covenant requires committed faith. God has come to Abraham with this covenant, and now he is asking for a committed response from Abraham. 
Now you'll remember what we've talked about with covenants made by God. Uh, We see a picture in Genesis 15 of God making a covenant with Abraham. And when he does that, we learn something about God's, God's covenants. God's covenants are unilateral, meaning they are one-sided. God does not make a covenant with Abraham where he sits down with him at a negotiation table and says, here's what I think, and Abraham says, here's what I think, and they come to some form of compromise. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, when God makes a covenant with us today, he does it unilaterally. He sets the terms. He tells us what the covenant will be. And he instructs us on what our responsibilities therefore are. And this doesn't sit well with us often. Because especially in our context today, we live in a day and age of kind of me-centered spirituality. Uh, We live in a day and age where we want to determine what it is we do and do not believe. We live in a time when you can walk into a bookstore in the spirituality aisle and you can find a religion that suits you. You can find a version of God that goes along with how you feel. And so if there's something, for example, in the Scripture that is contrary to your life, your lifestyle, your choices, your attitude, your beliefs, well, you can just go find a God that fits how you want to believe. That is not a picture of the God of the Old and New Testament. See, God is the one who sets the terms. God is the one who tells us who He is. And God is the one who instructs us on how it is we can have a relationship with Him. He makes covenants like this, and He does them unilaterally. And that may not sit well with you because you then see God as somehow overbearing. But but I hope you will see this. God setting the terms is an aspect of God's grace to us. God's covenants are a sign of His grace. Here's what I mean by that. If God's covenants were dependent on us, they wouldn't be worth much. If God's covenant relationship with us was dependent on our level of commitment... It wouldn't be much of a covenant. And that's why you see in Genesis 15 that that what we talked about, how there God tells Abraham to take these animals and cut them to pieces. And we talked about how in the context of Abraham's day, that that was how agreements were sealed. The, The two parties making an agreement would walk between those pieces of the animals. And as they did, what they were saying was, if I break my commitment to you, so shall I be. And if you break your commitment to me, so shall you be. It was a sign to indicate whoever breaks this covenant should be cut to to pieces. And yet in Genesis 15, God and Abraham don't go through that together. God goes alone. And as he does that, he's helping Abraham and helping us to understand he is the one who bears the consequence of a broken covenant. So when we sin... And one must be torn to pieces. It is Christ who is torn to pieces on our behalf. That that covenant is a picture of the gospel. And that is what we see here as well. God makes a unilateral, one-sided, and yet very gracious covenant with us. 
And he is the one who keeps it. Because if it was up to us, it just wouldn't get kept. You think about when you enter into a commitment with someone, how many loopholes there are to get out of it. Think about when you sit down and you come to a contractual agreement with someone, how many pages usually have to be in that agreement because you have to dot every I and cross every T because if you miss something, somebody can kind of wiggle out of their commitment. You think about how lightly we take commitments today and you get a picture of how gracious God is to us that, that He's the one who keeps the covenant because if we're honest, we're not very committed people, especially when we think about religious or spiritual commitments some of you have grown up in this church and you you've been here long enough to see literally hundreds of people walk this aisle over the years and when they did to see something along the lines of them saying to you or the pastor saying on their behalf here is so and so and they're coming to commit to be members of this church this is where they want to worship. They, they want to be a part of our church family. They're going, to, they're going to give to support the ministries of this church. They're going to serve here. We're going to welcome them into our membership. And you, you've seen people make those commitments. And yet, many of those people aren't here today. For some, over the years, others over months, some even over weeks after making that commitment, they don't fulfill it. This is how we do. And so it's so crucial that we trust in a God who is the covenant keeper. And we understand that He's the one who makes the covenant. He's the one that keeps the covenant. But even in that, we have to ask the question that the text, I think, brings before us today. If God's the covenant keeper, then what are we responsible to do? And what we see in this text and what we see throughout God's Word is as much as God still keeps the covenant, we're responsible for something. We're called to a response. Abraham was called to a response here. You notice in verse 9, God says to Abraham, As for you, Abraham, the first eight verses, God has said, I. I will, I will, I will. God has said, I followed by an action eight times in those first eight verses. He has made it clear that he's the covenant keeper. But here, in verse 9, he then says to Abraham, but Abraham, you, you have a responsibility here. Now, now, this is not what God's saying. God is not saying here, Abraham, here's your responsibility, and if you don't do this, then everything gets undone. God doesn't say to Abraham, Abraham, if you don't do what I'm asking you to do, then Genesis 3.15 is null and void, and no offspring is going to come to crush the head of the enemy. That's not what God does. Why? Because again, the covenant depends on him. But he does call Abraham to a very tangible response. And he calls us today to a very tangible response as well. And here in the text this morning, he does it in the form of a covenant sign, which I think points us towards the response we are to have, which is a committed faith. Which leads us to the second point in your notes there. Committed faith, trust in God's sovereignty, while understanding our responsibility. This is the tension you see in God's Word. God is completely sovereign and in control. And yet, He has also called us to a response. We bear responsibility. God is sovereign and we are responsible. And you see that tension in the text today. 
you see him tell Abraham that he is to have a sign of the covenant. And this sign of the covenant will be circumcision. Not just for him, but for every male in his household. And not just for the people who are born into his household, but for the people that are bought into his household. In Abraham's day, it was common for people of wealth to purchase servants. And that's what Abraham has done here. And God has told Abraham, this will be a covenant sign for you and your household. This sign of circumcision. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think that God tells Abraham to do this in some painful way of making sure he's really committed. You know, Abraham, if you really trust me, then you need to do this. I don't think he's putting Abraham to the test by giving him something painful to do. No, I think this covenant sign directly correlates to the promises God has made and to the promises that will be fulfilled and ultimately moves forward into the New Testament to the signs of the new covenant that we have today. See, this covenant sign involved cutting. Cutting is something you see there in the Scripture as part of God's covenant. God literally, the Scripture tells us, cuts a covenant with man. We saw that in Genesis 15. Is these animals are cut and separated and God moves through them. Again, saying, the one who breaks the covenant will be cut like this. And God says He's going to bear that on our behalf. And that's why when you fast forward to the cross of Jesus, you see Jesus being beaten and cut on our behalf. You see a blood sacrifice being made on our behalf. And so, this whole issue of circumcision wasn't just some painful reminder to Abraham. It was a very specific, intentional reminder that not only involved cutting, but involved the whole area of reproduction. And this is significant, because as we've seen since Genesis 3.15, God's promise directly relates to reproduction. God has promised that one is going to come through the offspring of Adam and Eve who will ultimately defeat the enemy on the cross. And we have been walking through Genesis and we have seen how God is going to make sure that happens. How ultimately now this offspring is going to come through Abraham. And yet, look at how many times Abraham's already put that at jeopardy. He has essentially sold his wife Sarah off to the Pharaoh because he was fearful for his own life. He has gone into a relationship with his wife's servant to bear a child to make sure he has an offspring. He's done all these things to jeopardize this promise of God. And yet, the promise depends on God. And so when God gives this covenant sign as a reminder to Abraham, He does it in such a way that He is reminding him, Abraham, an offspring will come who one day will defeat sin and death. And that's exactly where circumcision would point God's people until they would get to the New Testament times and the Gospels. And Jesus indeed would come as that offspring and indeed would defeat sin and death on our behalf. And in doing that, Jesus would institute for us new covenant signs, new reminders to remind us of the promise that God has made and the promise that He would fulfill. You see, the, the covenant side of circumcision, the promise there is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the offspring who comes. But He's still giving us covenant signs today. 
And I want to look very briefly at those with you. They are the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. See, in Paul's day, you had people who were coming to Christ and coming to faith in Christ who were Gentiles. They didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. And you had a group of people referred to as the Judaizers who would try to then convert them in essence to Judaism so that they could become Christians. Essentially what they were saying to them was this. You need to abide by all these Jewish regulations and practices, including circumcision, in order to have true saving faith. And so oftentimes Paul was responding to this in his letters and saying, no, no, you don't need to do all these works. You simply need to have saving faith faith and in doing this he specifically teaches why no it's not physical circumcision we need it's circumcision of the heart and we represent that a sign of that is baptism we read that for example in colossians chapter 2 where paul writes this in him speaking of jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul says, listen, you don't need physical circumcision anymore. What you need is for God to cut out your cold, dead heart and to give you a new heart. And that's what he does in the gospel. And Paul says that's why when we're, when we're baptized, he writes in Romans 6, when we're baptized, we are identifying, we are marked by what it is Jesus has done in our life. That's why he says we are buried with Christ in baptism. When we go under that water, we are uh, identifying with Christ, dying for our sins. When we are under that water, we are identifying with the cleansing work that God has done through Christ. And when we come out of that water, when we come out of that water, Paul says... We are putting our hope in the resurrection of Jesus. See, the Bible teaches that one day, for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have repented and put our faith in Him, who have, who have died, those among us who have gone before us, who are buried in graves throughout Nelson and other counties right now, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a day when Jesus returns and He promises a resurrection. And he says, literally, that ground is going to explode and those bodies are going to be resurrected. Now, we can't even understand as we read that in the Scripture exactly what that looks like and the glory of that. So God gives us this sign in baptism and reminds us, one day, the dead in Christ will rise. He is pointing us towards a promise. And that promise is significant. See, some of you came here today and you are worried, you are anxious. Some of you came in here today and you are flat out overwhelmed. Some of you came in here today and you're kind of listening cautiously because you're not real sure you can trust in this God that I'm speaking of. Because, to put it plainly, He hasn't done what you thought He would do. Maybe you feel like He has let you down. Maybe you're watching people suffer, have watched people suffer, have experienced great loss, and you're sitting here today going, why would I put my hope in a God who allows this? And the Scripture says because He won't always allow it. The Scripture says because that God and King Jesus Christ is returning for those 
who are his. And as those bodies blow up out of the ground, it's not just for effect. It's because they are being resurrected into a new heaven and a new earth. And friends, that's the promise of the covenant that we live in light of. That's the promise that baptism points us to. And not just baptism, but the Lord's Supper as well. When we gather for the Lord's Supper, this is a sign of the covenant promise of God. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 or 11. And notice the, the, the covenant blood language that Jesus uses here. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That means when we come together for the Lord's Supper and we pick up that little itty-bitty cracker that might be falling apart in our hands, that is a reminder to us. It's a reminder that you don't need to be broken for your sin. Christ's body was already broken on your behalf. Christ died for whatever it is this morning that you feel so guilty and weighed down about. For whatever sin it is that has created great problems in your life, Jesus dealt with that on the cross. And that bread reminds us of that. But not just bread. There's the cup. Paul writes in the same way, he, Jesus, took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus says when we pick up that little plastic thimble of a cup with juice in it, that, that represents something. That represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on our behalf because He was cut for us. That represents a promise, friend, a promise that His blood is sufficient to cover your sin and mine. And a promise that He's coming back. He's not abandoned us. He's not left us. He's returning for those that are His. And He tells us not only to live in light of that promise, but to proclaim it until He comes back. Now those are the signs, I believe, of the covenant we now live under as believers. And yet, just as circumcision became kind of an empty tradition, baptism in the Lord's Supper can be a very empty tradition for us today. And that's why baptism is kind of become for many this, this representation of, you know, I don't have to go to church. I don't really have to do anything because I've been baptized and I'm good now. And it's become sort of an empty tradition. The Lord's Supper, a lot of times when we receive the Lord's Supper, we'll be receiving it next Lord's Day. We take that thimble cup and we take that little cracker and we are no more thinking about the body and the blood of Jesus than we are anything else. And our mind is racing ahead to when we're going to get a real meal that day or the worries and anxieties we have about the week. What I found is that the more shallow, honestly, your walk with the Lord is, the more shallow your understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper are. And the deeper your walk with the Lord is, the more significant baptism and the Lord's Supper are. And, and really what's sad and scary is that if you don't really get anything from baptism and the Lord's Supper, if there's not a deepness to that, if there's not a real covenant reminder there for you, it may not just be an indication that you have a shallow faith. It may be an indication you don't have saving faith at all. And that's the last point I want to make this Lord's Day. 
point three in your notes, faith without commitment, I believe, is not saving faith. Abraham is reminded by the Lord in a warning in verse 14 for those who would refuse this covenant sign. Those who would refuse it and be uncircumcised, God says, they shall be cut off. They are not a part of my covenant people. What God is saying here simply is this. Someone in Abraham's household couldn't say, well, I don't want to receive that covenant sign. I don't really want to have anything to do with that. But I'm all for receiving God's blessing. I don't want to make this commitment, but I'm happy with God's stuff. And God says that's not how it works. He says that in Abraham's day. He says that in our day as well. And yet you have so many who kind of think that way. They don't really want to commit They don't really understand or respond to this whole issue of repentance, but they want God to bless them. They're the first ones to say to you when there's a need in their life, oh, will you pray for this? I really need God to do something here. And yet, sadly, so often, they don't have true saving faith. They have a very shallow and many times empty faith. So so what does that commitment look like? What does committed faith look like? Well, very simply, let me share with you the words of Jesus because I think he says it clearly. Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says you want a, a barometer, you want a measurement for true saving faith? It starts with you denying yourself. With you saying, not my will, but Lord, your will be done. Now ask yourself, have you truly done that? Do you sit here this morning as one who has gone before the Lord, turned from sin and said, Lord, I'm done with me, and I want to live for for you. Jesus says that's a mark of saving faith. Not just that, he says, one who takes up his cross. This is an identification with Jesus. This is what baptism and the Lord's Supper represent for us. Identifying with Jesus. Understanding, as we looked last week, that as believers, we have a new name. We have the name Christian. And that should affect us. People should see a difference in your life today versus when you were unrepentant and lost. Not because you are a better moral person, but because Christ has removed your cold, dead heart and given you a new one. And that's producing fruit in your life. That that is a mark of saving faith. And then third, Jesus says, follow Him. That means very simply, doing what Jesus says the way Jesus says to do it. And not coming to the table thinking you're going to renegotiate the terms. But understanding His Word is absolute. And we are called to surrender to it. That's what saving faith looks like. What saving faith is not, saving faith is not someone who says, well, Jesus is Lord, and I believe in Him, and I'm good. I got my card from VBS when I was seven years old. See right here? I, I signed it right here. That's the day I made a commitment, so I'm, I'm safe now. I walked the aisle at Bloomfield Baptist Church when I was 12, so I'm, I'm good. The Scripture doesn't say any of those things are marks of saving faith. In fact, Jesus says in the Scripture that one day, and these are the most 
chilling words, I think, from Jesus in the New Testament. He says, one day people will stand before Him and they will say, Lord, Lord. They will call Him Lord. And these will be people who did some pretty miraculous stuff. People who the Scripture tells us healed people in the name of Jesus. Cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Now, I don't want to show of hands, but I'm guessing that's not many of us here today. But, but I do believe there's probably some of us here who one day are going to stand before Jesus and we're going to say, oh yeah, Jesus, you're my Lord. And He's going to say to us what He says to those in Matthew 7. I don't even know who you are. Just think about that for a moment. But Jesus, I've got my card. <laughs> Here's my baptismal certificate right here, Jesus. I'm good. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know if He knows you? How do you know if you have saving faith, friend? Have you denied yourself? Have you identified with Him? And are you following Him? And if not, what, what are you waiting for? How many more times do you need to hear the Gospel before it takes root and you repent? And for those of you who have, who've repented, praise God, are you living in light of that now? Are you living for the next sporting event? The next calendar event? The next bonus at work? The next family vacation? Are these the things that you look at and, and that's all that matters in life? Because if it is, be careful, friend. Be careful. If I were to tell you today, going back to that opening illustration, that, that I had it on, on good faith, someone had let me know that in your possession, in your home, there was a painting that if you took the back off of it, you would find an original copy of the Declaration of Independence worth $8 million. If I were to tell you that right now, what would you do? As soon as I closed my eyes to pray, you'd be gone. You wouldn't stick around for the invitation. You would get into that house. You would secure... Well, you'd look to see if it was true. Then you'd secure that painting. You'd get out your guns to make sure nobody took it. And you get that to the place where it would be received as the valuable document that it is. And after you did that, you would celebrate. You would be calling up people. You would be letting them know. You will never believe what was behind Aunt Flossie's painting of the cats playing with the yarn. You would be ecstatic. You would be overwhelmed. Your life would look so different. Friends, I promise you, you have in the gospel something of more value than a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Because every original copy of the Declaration of Independence will be ashes one day. And every dollar in every bank account will be ashes one day. And every bar of gold will be melted down to nothing. And what will stand and what will remain is the faith we have in our Lord Jesus and the work He did on our behalf on the cross. And if you are trusting in anything but that today, stop. Turn to Him. Have faith in Him. Trust in Him. Repent and have faith. If you would, pray with me to that end. Father, we do come to You in Jesus' name. And Lord, I ask that You would do a radical work among us not just in this moment, but day after day after day. For those 
who Satan has blinded from the truth of the gospel, would you remove those blinders? Would you help them to see they have hope in nothing else? It's an empty hope if it's anywhere else. Their hope must be in the gospel. And Lord, would you call them to faith and repentance? And Lord, for those who have, but perhaps are are living in light of other things today, perhaps their, their trust has been put in and things that one day will be gone. Perhaps that their faith is weak. Perhaps even very shallow. Lord, would you call them to a deeper walk with you? Not deeper in the sense of some spiritual experience, but deeper in their knowledge of you and your word. Deeper in their understanding of the work the gospel has done on their behalf. Deeper in their application of that, of going to a lost and dying community sharing the gospel of Jesus with them. Lord, would you call us and empower us in these ways. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.